Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, we welcome back Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky, and she and Clay Jenkinson tackle some of the more difficult issues facing America today. Recent Supreme Court decisions on guns, on the Environmental Protection Agency, on abortion and Roe v. Wade, and on the separation of church and state, one of the things Jefferson believed most strongly in, have caused the nation to reflect on the role of the courts and its enormous power in American life. And in the end, you do bring us back to Jefferson, which always helps. Thomas Jefferson, of course, gave us the phrase wall of separation between church and state, and he did not believe the Supreme Court should be able to determine the destiny of the American people. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss American events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now. And good day to you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson, you turned 83 on the 13th of April in 1826, and at that time, sadly, you were suffering from terrible health. Uh, and you had been invited to a 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, but you had to decline. Uh, you wrote a very famous letter to Roger Waitman, informing him that you could not come. I had been invited to come to the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence in Washington, D.C. I was in poor health and, in fact, was dying and was not able to make that journey. I don't know that I would have anyway, citizen. You know, I never went back to Washington after I left it in March of 1809, after my second term as president. I went home to Monticello. I occasionally traveled to a second of my farms in Bedford County, uh, Poplar Forest, and I went to Richmond once. I went to the, the Allegheny Mountains once, to the Warm Springs, but I did not travel much, and certainly not to the seats of power, to Washington, to Philadelphia, to Boston, or New York. So I sent a letter instead, because of course I was proud that the 50th anniversary had come of the Declaration of Independence, that I had been its principal author, and that I was still alive on this important occasion. But I still think I probably would not have attended even if my health had been better. You did write a very kind letter in, in it. You said, quote, Our fellow citizens, after half a century of experience and prosperity, continue to approve the choice we made. As you mentioned, sir, it must have made you well, quite proud. Proud for several reasons. First of all, honored to have been a part of that generation. I think the pivotal moment in human history will be July 4th, 1776. Uh, that may not seem self-evident now, but I think it will become self-evident over time that that's the moment when the modern republic, the small r republic, was born, when governments uh, were put on notice that they must cherish and embrace the rights of man, and if they don't, they deserve to be overthrown. I think that the, the world will be seen as before 1776, the nightmare of history, and after 1776, when the birth of light came to characterize the human experiment, 
So I was proud to have been a part of that movement. And if I had never been born, that movement would, of course, have have been more or less what it was. But I was also proud to have been the principal author of this document. And when I wrote it in June of 1776, I could not know that it would become famous. There were hundreds of other state papers and documents and remonstrances and petitions that are forgotten by history. This one is not. I take limited credit because of the language that I used, especially in the famous preamble, but I couldn't know in 1776 that this would become the most important document in American history, even more important than the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. So to find that it had already achieved that in my lifetime uh, was deeply gratifying to me, and it, it, in a sense it vindicated my life. I mean, if you ask me, what are the things that vindicated my life on earth, I would say the Declaration in 1776, equally important, the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty in 1786, and then, of course, the University of Virginia, which was uh, an institution designed to to embrace and, and perpetuate the notions of human rights. So, yes, I couldn't go. So here's what I did say, sir. I said all eyes are open or opening to the rights of man. The gradual spread of the light of science has already laid open to every view the palpable truth that the mass of men were not born with saddles on their backs, nor a favored few booted and spurred, ready to ride them legitimately by the grace of God. Let that be the ground of hope for others. Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are welcome, sir. Hey, citizens, and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation about Thomas Jefferson, about the United States, about current events. This week, we are joined by one of our favorite guests, Lindsay Chervinsky, and the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. I'm your host, David Swenson. I welcome the both of you to another Thomas Jefferson Hour. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. This week on the Jefferson Hour, Clay, we're going to talk about some some very difficult issues, and, and that's a risk, isn't it? It is, and I will say this, that we love having our friend Lindsay Chervinsky on. She's a spirited, refreshing young historian with a whole life of great work ahead of her. She's young, and I think when you're young, you're more likely to to feel certitude about certain things. As I grow older, I feel less certain about most things. I don't know about you, David, but I'm so glad to have this opportunity to hear from Lindsay. But I want to warn our listeners, in my case, in your case, and in Lindsay's case, that when you talk about things of this complexity and things that get at the very heart of what it is to be an American, there are no final answers. 
historians are, are people too, and, 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 and we're groping in the dark much of the time, that we're all fighting, we're struggling to make sense, to be clear, to be articulate, to be historical. And I just want to warn our listeners that there may be things in this program that you find um, that you disagree with or even are offended by, but know that these are three people with great hearts who are honestly attempting to wrestle with intractable human problems in a free society. Well, before we begin that discussion, I have a piece of email that I really feel compelled to read. It comes from Jeff Russell, and the subject matter is Lindsay Chervinsky and a thank you. And the message reads, I would like to comment on something that I suspect you already know very well. Lindsay Chervinsky is a real gem. I have been a regular listener of your podcast for six or seven years. I have not missed a single episode. And he goes on to call our shows with you, Lindsay, very special. Jeff says he recently attended the University of Virginia's Summer Jefferson Symposium, and the keynote speaker this year was you. And that, quote, as enjoyable as it is to listen to Lindsay on the Thomas Jefferson Hour— it was even better to see her in person. Facial expressions, body language, and exuberance enhance her presentation. Thank you for the educational opportunities you provide. If I had history teachers in school with even half of your ability to make history interesting, then I am certain I would not have held the topic in such disdain. I no longer hold history in disdain, but instead embrace it and approach it enthusiastically. Thank you for your efforts. And I just thought that was a good place to start the conversation this week. Are you blushing? I am. That is incredibly kind. Uh, I indeed was at the UVA Summer Jefferson Symposium, and there were a lot of Thomas Jefferson, our listeners there, which I suppose is no surprise given the the overlap in topic matter. Um, lots of wonderful fans and uh, it was a delight to meet them in person. And they raved about you both, Clay and David, and just was so encouraging because I know we've all sort of had a rough go here. And so when people, you know, reach out to say how much they appreciate your efforts and how much they appreciate the history, that is really motivating to keep going. Well, that's great. I, I'm so glad that in the heart of, of Jefferson Land at uh, the UVA at Charlottesville that we have... Uh, friends and and listeners and maybe even fans. We started the program today with me doing something that I haven't done in a long time, and that is reading a letter from a listener. And Lindsay, that's something that Clay and I have done in the past is tried to keep up with all the email we get and the questions both to Clay and to President Jefferson. There's a couple that I would like to read, if, if you don't mind. And this is about the 4th of July episode. And we have one sort of pro and one sort of con. The first one comes from Joseph Cobb. And he said, I have just recently finished your most recent episode on the 4th of July. And as a longtime listener to the Jefferson Hour, I've enjoyed these themed shows while I appreciate the clear effort to keep the shows focused, I was truly disappointed by the utter inability of the three guests to put aside their dark, opinionated, and partisan worldviews in order to sing the song of America for even a brief moment. Where the guests see doom, I still hold hope and optimism for America. You know, I got a call from one of my close friends, David, Joey King, you, who is um, 
college president and uh, entrepreneur, and he's a very dedicated listener to the program. Here's what he said. He said, I have felt for several years that my anxiety about the future of America was probably an overreaction, and I have fought this in myself because I, I don't want to be swept up in this moment of disillusionment and pessimism. But he said, when I heard Chrysler, who is not a pessimist, speak in the tones that he did on the Jefferson Hour, he said, I realized, A, that I am not alone, and B, that we really are on the precipice of the possible loss of a Republican system of government in the United States. I hear Joseph, and of course you want to sing the Song of America. Nobody ever sang the Song of America better than the third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson. Go to his first inaugural address. It is the Song of America. So we get it. But we are living through, in my opinion, the most pivotal moment in American democracy of my lifetime. You cannot succumb to pessimism, but you must face this as an existential threat to everything that we should believe in as a people, I think. So, Lindsay, I don't know if you if you share that, but my friend Joey King said, I could hear it in Chrysler's voice, and, I, and he's been haunted by it ever since. So I appreciate the letter, but I think that there's a fundamental mistake at the base of it, which is that hope and cheer is not the opposite of moroseness. Hope and fear is the opposite of apathy. So we are concerned because we care. We are worried because we love the country. If we didn't love it, if we didn't care about it, we wouldn't care what happened to it. We wouldn't care about the future. And if we didn't have such intense belief in its promise, then we wouldn't sit here and talk about these things. That's a pretty significant time commitment to talk about something that you don't care about. So I think that that's an important note, that if we didn't believe in the promise of what the United States could be, and I, I want to just emphasize that there has never been a glowing moment of American history. There have been moments marked by brilliance and triumph, but they are often accompanied by pain and suffering. And so we are constantly striving for a better America, and that is truly the uh, legacy that we should remember from Jefferson, in my opinion. Um, we believe in that promise. And so we show up to talk about these things, even when it's hard, even when it's it's difficult. And I think that, you know, we're recording this on July 5th. Yesterday is a really good example. In theory, it should be a day of celebration. It should be a day to reflect on the brilliant and difficult moments of our history and the things that might come in the future. And it was marred by the 309th mass shooting in the United States. So that's not political. That's not partisan. That's an unfortunate and devastating attack. And so I think that we can't we can't gloss over those things and pretend like they're not happening or suggest that concern about that violence is purely because of our voting registration. I must interject here in defense of the three guests we had on our 4th of July program. I found a great deal of optimism in all of their comments. Granted, there was some darkness in those comments as well, but 
it's a difficult time we're living through, not just in America, but the whole planet. I heard a commentator uh, on the 4th of July talking about the people who were killed in Illinois that day during a parade in the morning and uh, people who were random you know these were absolutely innocent people these were not people that was not like targeting someone you think has to be targeted this is just random stuff and some people were in the line of fire and other people weren't and the commentator said is this is this american exceptionalism is our american exceptionalism our unique national love affair with weapons of destruction he said well, you know we all get rifles and maybe even pistols and a shotgun to hunt pheasants. And this is part of American heritage. It's a strange American heritage, but it's part of it. But he said, what I don't get is that weapons that are designed to kill large numbers of people fast, why that is protected as part of a great civilization's social compact. He said, is this American exceptionalism that you're stuck forever? with your gun mania and that you're just going to have the 310th and then the 350th and then the 410th and then the 510th mass shooting. And each time you're going to say, well, I guess we have a second amendment. Uh, that That's the end of that. Let's, let's wring our hands for a while, but there ain't nothing we can do about that. He said, surely a nation as great and as, as meaningful in the world's arena as the United States has got to find a way to address this problem. And I add to that, David and Lindsay, the Constitution is not a suicide pact. The Constitution was not meant to be a suicide pact. And here we are with these mass shootings that now come almost once a week, certainly once a month in America, and all we can do is wring our hands and the bill that passed the United States Congress is useful but extremely limited and unlikely to really get at this. It's time for a sober, serious, right-to-the-mat national conversation about gun violence in America. We have to do it. If we don't do it now, we're going to do it on the 410th or the 710th we are going to have that conversation. The nation is finally going to wake up one day. And, and what's it going to take? How many more thousands or tens of thousands of death? The nation's going to wake up one day and say, all right, we're going to have to address this. And the fact that we won't do it now is a very, very puzzling fact of American life. Indeed. We need to take a short break, but we'll return in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation, well, your weekly conversation with Clay Jenkinson and Lindsay Chervinsky. We're so pleased to have you back, Lindsay. Our happy republic, this democracy, is never going to be squeaky clean and comfortable. It's always going to be somewhat of a mess. If I've learned anything listening to the two of you, it's that. But I do want to return to that 4th of July show because there was a second letter, and I think you should hear that. And it came from Dale Thompson, who said he just listened to that show under his 13-star American flag, sitting on his front porch, reading The Making of the President, 1964. By Theodore White, the great historian of that era. I thought you would approve of that, Clay. And he says... It seems as though those who believe that the Constitution is divinely inspired are in actuality advocating a return to the days of the old Confederation. Not everything can come from Washington, but at a minimum, human rights need to be honored everywhere. He says, as I reflect on the country on this July 4th, my concern is that we are averting to the days of the United States are and the dominance of states' rights, and moving away from the United States is, and the concept of one united country. He said that he is going to reread the Federalist Papers, and he thought that perhaps would help him. <laughs> that'll, that'll certainly lull him. Uh, some of them are tough sledding. Uh, so I want to, Lindsay sort of challenged the first letter. I, I want to slightly challenge this letter. It's not necessarily about the concept of federalism, that some things are national in scope and some things are state in scope. We all accept that. That's one of the unique features of our Constitution. Jefferson would make it more of a confederation of sovereign states. Hamilton would make it a centralized nation with some respect for state sovereignty and authority. And we've had that debate through the course of American history. That's not what troubles me. What troubles me is that there is the use of the Tenth Amendment to try to set back the progress of humanity that we are now seeing, and I think it's fair to say that Justice Clarence Thomas has spoken openly of this, we are seeing an attempt to, to, to pull back the last 40 years, essentially to undo the broad civil rights movement of the last 40 years, what he wrote in his opinion in the Dobbs case, inviting cases to burble up that will review same-sex marriage, possibly review contraception, this, in my opinion, is an overt attempt to use the Tenth Amendment to create Ozzie and Harriet's America, to recreate it, draw back on the progress that we've made in the last 40, 50, and 60 years. And I think it is a fundamental misuse of the dual federalism of the American Constitution. For the sake of our listeners, Clay, would you explain the Tenth Amendment? Tenth Amendment was was part of the original Bill of Rights. You know, the first seven are substantive, and the ninth says, don't think this is an exhaustive list of all the rights that, that people have in nature or in America. This is the list we made right here. That's a very important, that's the expansive uh, number of the Bill of Rights, and, and it invites us to remember that we have rights that are not codified in this or any other instrument of government. Extremely important. 
much ignored, I think, through American history. The Tenth Amendment was an anti-federalist amendment uh, that says the powers that are not expressly enumerated in this new constitution. We get it. These are the powers the government now has if we ratify this thing, and we have ratified it. But the powers that are not enumerated here still belong to the states and to the people. That Don't forget that, that Virginia is a commonwealth and that Kentucky is a commonwealth and that New Hampshire is a commonwealth and that they have sovereignty rights that persist and must be protected and are in this 10th Amendment explicitly protected against the encroachment of the national government. Lindsay, your comment on that. No, it's a really good point. And it it strikes me, you know, there were, I know we're going to get more into some of the events of the last couple of weeks, but one of the, there were two cases about the separation of church and state that came up in the last couple of weeks. And of course, the Dobbs decision I found to be deeply problematic and the decision about the EPA I found to be deeply problematic. And I could go on and on about all the things that I was upset about in the last couple of weeks. But those two cases actually, to me, I think were the ones that maybe got less attention and highlight the world that the court is trying to create, just as you said. There were, so there are two cases. The main case, basically, there are parts of Maine that there are there are not too many schools, and students are are allowed to go to a public school and basically receive funding to go to a public school. But if there is not a public school nearby, a lot of people will go to parochial schools or religious leaning schools, and some are sort of barely religious leaning, and then some actually include religious instruction. And what the case basically said was that the state has to fund those schools in the same way that it has to fund public schools. It, it provides the same amount of funding per student like it does the public schools. The second case was about a coach, a football coach, who was fired for praying after um, repeatedly after a football game. And uh, not just praying privately, but praying on the 50-yard line surrounded by his students. And the argument was, the argument in favor of the firing is that the students felt pressured to join. It was still part of the activities of the school. This was a public school, so it is a federally funded school. And the argument against was that it's private, quiet prayer, and people get to do what they want in the quiet of their own mind. The court found on behalf of the coach and said that he needed to be reinstated with what I, I think and most scholars think are absolutely incorrect facts, including his fellow justices. The dissent demonstrates that these facts are incorrect. The, the, the problem with these two cases is when religion is imposed or that worldview is imposed on the rest of Americans. And that is what I think the court is trying to do. And it feels fundamentally at odds with the concept of personal freedom, which in theory is the bedrock of the United States. Clay, in listening to Lindsay, it almost sounds as if she's saying that a certain segment of American society is being favored. It's hard not to think, David, that at this time, uh, the Supreme Court is trying to return us to 1945 or possibly 1925. And I think that everyone who cares about this country is at least perplexed by this, and I think all of us need to think again about what 
how how a free society works, how the final decisions about the most important questions in a free society are determined. And I think that's really the spirit of this program. And isn't the fear that, uh, forgive me for making it a simple statement, but if it can happen to that guy, it can happen to... Yeah, it's, it's sort of what John Donne, my favorite poet, said, every man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. Therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. This week it's Roe v. Wade. Next week it's something else. You know, these these are hard decisions for these justices to make. But I think that there is a spirit of the times that has a certain loss of national confidence in it. And I think that's sort of what we're trying to wrestle with here. So I hope people will understand it's not about our opinions about these things. It's about our attempt to make sense of them. Well, you, you leave me a perfect opening, sir. How would Jefferson make sense of them? So Jefferson gave us the phrase, wall of separation between church and state. It was in a letter to the Danbury Baptists in 1802. It began to be quoted after the Civil War by the courts uh, and in the 20th century quite extensively as sort of the best possible short paraphrase of the intentions of the First, Am- of the First Amendment with respect to the establishment of religion in the United States. Jefferson would probably be happy about that, but he didn't intend that. That wasn't meant to be a constitutional pronouncement. It was a letter to some well-wishers in Connecticut. Uh, And it's the courts that that appropriated the phrase and have used it steadily. But in a case in the 1970s, uh, Associate Justice then Rehnquist said, this is crazy. Why are we leaning on Jefferson? That's not the Constitution. This is a phrase from a letter by Jefferson. We've given it way, way, way more weight and prominence than it deserves. From a historical point of view, he may have been right, but he was the beginning of the pendulum to swing away from that sense of a, of a serious separation, of like almost an absolute separation of church and state. In the case of the main case, I'm ambivalent about this because I can see the point, right? I think you can too, Lindsay, that you, you're, you're in some completely rural district of Maine. Um, the school you're going to, you're going to because it's available, uh, and you don't want to send your children 75 miles to some school. So if it's Christian school, I'm a citizen, government pays for public education, maybe in this case, you can you can argue that that should be a subsidy that, that could be allowed. I, I don't have a fundamental, I'm not offended by that decision. I might not have made that decision, but I'm not offended by it. But in the other case, I am offended by it. And I have very, very personal reasons for this. My daughter went to a school, a public school in Kansas. During football games, the coach prayed. My wife then, an extraordinary lawyer, pointed out that that was actually a violation of the wall of separation between church and state, which it was until last week. The argument by the school was, well, your child doesn't have to pray. She can go stand in the corner. I mean, that why she's if she's a Jehovah's Witness, if she's Hindu, if she's Muslim, if she just doesn't feel like it, she can go stand over there. That's an appalling pressure to put on a child, and it is a de facto establishment of a state church. It means that the norm is that you pray maybe an ecumenical or maybe a Baptist or maybe a Methodist prayer, and anyone who doesn't like it is marginalized 
on public property paid for by public funds. In my view, that is absolutely illegal, and the court should have maintained that. And by succumbing to this view that this coach in Washington has a right to do this to people who aren't necessarily Christians is a is exactly what Jefferson was trying to get at in his advocacy for the First Amendment and in the letter he wrote to the Baptists of Danbury, Connecticut. So one I can understand because of the nature of rural life. The other one seems to me a deliberate attempt to breach the wall of separation between church and state, and I believe more is coming, don't you, Lindsay? I do, and I should just make one quick clarification. The the praying by this coach was after the game had concluded, but not before the students had gone back to the locker room. They're still on the field. They're still on the field. They're still in uniform. And the students testified that they felt that if they didn't participate, they would not get equal playing time. Of course. This is peer pressure. Yeah, it, it's it's ludicrous to think that this is so in in Justice Gorsuch's opinion, he said that this was a time when a, a different teacher or a professor or a coach would talk to friends, be with family, enjoy dinner, make dinner reservations as though the coach's job was done the minute the clock hit zero. And anyone who has played a sport knows that that's not when the coach's job is actually done. And I think the problem is not even necessarily that this is the, I mean, there's so many problems with this ruling and I share incredible dis- your incredible discomfort with this decision. But I, I, I challenge people to say, oh, well, like what's the big deal? A lot of athletes do pray. A lot of athletes are religious. What if the coach wasn't Christian? What if the coach was Muslim and was offering up a Muslim prayer on the 50-yard line? How would you then feel about this decision? And I think that's the problem because a lot of people feel that the same sort of protections are not going to be offered equally to other religions because of the way that a lot of the justices have phrased their decisions over the last year. What if the coach is Jewish? What what if the coach is Jewish in a in a decidedly Protestant school and he says, I'm gonna pray in Hebrew now. Uh you don't have to, you know, just, just stand around. You don't have to understand what I'm saying, but I'm gonna do it. I mean, what Lindsay's pointing to is the gross hypocrisy of it. We would never uphold a Muslim prayer on that school in Bremerton, Washington, or a Hindu prayer or a Jewish prayer, or a prayer by the Lakota natives. This is meant to this. What this does is say that Christianity is the norm, and other things are not. This may seem too simplistic, but I have to ask: the majority view in that case obviously was on the side of the coach and his being able to do that. So, who wins, the majority view or the Constitution? Well, these are not easy questions. Easy questions don't get to the Supreme Court. So, we all know that there are there are very difficult things here. For example. What about prayer at baccalaureate, which doesn't necessarily take place at the school? It's a more, it's a ceremonial thing. Uh, that's that's one. How about if a Muslim group wants to meet in a classroom after school hours? Is that acceptable or isn't? In other words, the, the, there there's the black and white area, and then there are gray areas in every direction on these things. And so the courts have to decide, you know, and 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 the undue burden test is one of them. Like, does this put an undue burden on a student who's not a Christian in that school? I think it does. 
But honest people can disagree about some of these things. But the, but what alarms me is the complacency and, and the trajectory of all of this. This isn't just about separation of church and state. It's also about women's reproductive freedom. It's also about guns. It's also about environmental protection, etc. That the court is definitely moved, the Roberts court, and I think the irony is that Roberts is not really on board with all of this, but the Roberts court is moving in a retrograde motion that we have not seen in any significant way in the last 40 years. And and it also openly advertised through Clarence Thomas, who will soon be the longest-serving justice in Supreme Court history. It openly advertised that it, want, that it intends to, to go farther. So, David, to answer your question, the... Um... The Constitution doesn't say that the Supreme Court really has the final word. That was that was John Marshall's doing. That's Marbury v. Madison. <laughs> um, and yet the interesting thing about the Supreme Court is that it doesn't have any enforcement mechanism. It requires the public to be willing to accept its final decision. It does not have police. It does not have an army. It does not have any of those things. And there have been moments in the past when the Supreme Court has gotten so out of step with how the vast majority of Americans feel, or it has become so unpopular and therefore so disreputable that presidents or administrations or people have either disregarded the decision or basically said, prove it, or have forced them to back down. So FDR threatened to back the court. Uh, It was not a particularly popular threat, and yet it was enough to get the justices to back off or to retire. So he was able to appoint the justices he wanted. It didn't hurt that FDR won a huge landslide after that happened. Um, Plessy versus Ferguson and Dred Scott are great examples. Dred Scott was so unpopular that the Northerners basically said no, and they kind of refused to go along with it. And so I think that we are heading in that moment where the Supreme Court is so unpopular. I think at last, I think before this most recent round of decisions last week, maybe it was even before Dobbs, 25% of Americans approved of the Supreme Court. It has never, it has not been that low, at least in the last 100 years, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. That is not a sustainable place for the Supreme Court to be if it intends to keep making, issuing decisions that are so at odds with the vast majority of the American people. And so I think that we're getting, we're going to get to a point where the Supreme Court makes a decision and a court or a judge or a state like California or New York basically says, no, we won't do that. That's not constitutional. You're wrong. Huh. That's very interesting. We need to take a short break. I want to come back to this. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, reacting to events around the 4th of July 2020. Really an extraordinarily dramatic 10-day or so period in American history. And Lindsay, I was delighted at the end of the last section when you talked about states. Uh, I think you almost used the word interposition. You know, that states are going to refuse to accept certain decrees of the Supreme Court. I thought you were about to write the Kentucky resolutions here. Normally you attack <laughs> Jefferson and Madison for the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions, but now you're saying it may be that certain states are going to have to stand up to this sort of runaway national authority in the courts. I don't necessarily know that I would say that that's even a good thing because, you know, the last time that that has really happened, we kind of had a civil war. And so that's obviously not an ideal end goal for anyone here. Um, and I don't think that we would really necessarily have a civil war like there would be armies, you know, facing off in the streets of San Francisco. But I do think that what history is useful for is it demonstrates to us that, yes, these things have happened before. And, and on one hand, that is quite comforting that we are not not everything we're facing is unprecedented. And yet, on the other hand, if the parallels are the 1850s that's not a great place to be either. And so I think that that does sort of call call to mind the, the very dramatic moment we are currently in. I agree. So let's change the subject here. The irony of ironies is that the gun decision about guns in New York City came down in the last two weeks, more or less where we might have expected it to come down, frankly. And then on the 4th of July, the killing of eight people and the injuring of several dozen more and the terrifying of a whole population occurs in a suburb of Chicago. And when that happened, I was driving across Montana, uh, listening to satellite radio, and my first thought was, here we go again. And my second thought was, doesn't this irony percolate through every member of the Supreme Court? Are they not today, as they reflect on the 4th of July, asking themselves questions like, is the Constitution a suicide pact? What is the role of these nine individuals with that much power, over 340 million Americans, to interpret a document written more than 230 years ago when a musket was a high-tech weapon? I tried to have this conversation with some experts in Vail, Colorado, not so long ago, and they were saying, this is a constitutional question and a legal question. And I said, yes, but it's also a social policy question. Great nations find ways to talk about the fundamental issues. So, Lindsay, I guess the question I want to ask is to take us out of our opinions, if we can. How does a historian contextualize this in such a way as to bring clarity? Because you have an opinion, I have an opinion, David has an opinion, everyone listening has an opinion of all of this. But can you provide clarity. You and I are talking about guns of the type that are are usually intended to kill the maximum number of people in the most bloody way possible. I don't think you and I are saying that no one should own guns. And I don't think we are saying that we want to abolish guns. Not at all. Not at all. I Yeah, I understand that there is a cherished tradition, especially in certain parts of the country, where gun ownership and the family nature of passing things down and, and activities is very important. And I'm not trying to take that away. Hunting rifles, self-family yes, protection, home invasion protection. Of course. of course. You're in favor of all of that. 
I'm fine with that. And it, you know, and I, and to take the partisan out of it, so too was George H.W. Bush. If you look at the Republican Party platform as recently as the early 90s, including Reagan, they were in favor of sensible gun reform, which doesn't mean you can't own guns. It doesn't mean anyone is coming to take your guns. It means that do you really need an automatic rifle to go hunting? And if you do, if you truly need an automatic rifle, given the severity and the implications of that potential weapon, shouldn't it be reasonable to say that with that right comes great responsibility? And there should be a series of hoops that you have to jump through in order to prove that you are a safe person, just like you have to jump through a series of hoops to be able to get a driver's license. We should not view guns as a partisan issue, and yet it has become so partisan. As technology continues to develop and evolve, there are new dangers that come up to the American people all the time. That's the history of innovation. Things are great, but often can be dangerous and deadly. This is sort of normal human evolution. As you create something, it's great, but there are some limitations that are really important. And that was the normal course of action for gun ownership. There were limitations that went in lockstep with new improvements in weaponry. That's You're not allowed to own a tank if you're an average citizen. You're not allowed to own a cannon. There are a reason these things really are not in the hands of average citizens. And yet, for some reason, we have turned a blind eye to that similar evolutionary process when it comes to automatic weapons. And so in the historical context, this isn't an anomaly that doesn't fit with other human innovation. And that is baffling to me. All right, let me ask you this question, because I come from a red state, um, and guns are a very important thing here, and the Second Amendment is extremely important, and I think many North Dakotans would say that the Second Amendment is arguably the most important amendment to the Constitution of the United States. So I heard you talking about this, that we, run, we, we, we go through hoops to get a driver's license, to get a ham radio license, do all sorts of things. There's training, there's certification, there are background checks. And But when I hear this, I can hear you because I want to hear you. But my neighbor next door heard blah, 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 coming for your guns. Blah, 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 coming for your guns. Why can't you know this is true, that you, you, the mistake you're making is thinking that we can have a rational conversation about this. So why are we so irrational? Why is this the chief irrationality in American constitutional life? I don't know how to do that without discussing politics. There has been a merging of partisan rancor and discussion of this particular amendment. So I know no one's going to hear me when I say this if you firmly believe that, you know, the Second Amendment is absolute, but there is no constitutional right that's absolute. There's always a balancing test. That is how law works. There are limitations to every right, and there's a balancing test. The same is true for the Second Amendment, which is why it says well-regulated militia in the text. That should be sensible. That should be an understandable conversation. The rise of the gun lobby has turned that conversation from one about rational rights and restrictions and limitations and what actually the Constitution says to almost a, um, a cultural touchstone, a 
I don't know how to say this without saying almost a religion, that it's not based on fact, it's based on faith. And that's very difficult to have rational conversations with because if you believe something, that's your belief. And that's okay. That's what you believe. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's written in the Constitution. And just in support of the point you make, uh, 51% of the population of the United States has just suffered a loss of some of their rights, one could argue. I mean, that would be contested, of course. Constitutionalists might say that, and you know, we, you both know these arguments, that Roe was uh, badly decided in 1973, that the 10th Amendment should, should rule here, that this needs to be part of the democratic process, and that this has only returned this to the states so far, and that there's no prohibition on abortion by the Supreme Court. It's merely a saying that the venue for this to be worked out in a democratic society is in individual states. You can contest that if you want, but that's the constitutional argument that's being put forth. I guess the point I was trying to make is that, you know, you said um, early on something to the effect of no constitutional right is sacrosanct. I'm not sure exactly how you put it's it. Absolute. And I'm just trying to I'm I'm just trying to reinforce your point by what recently happened. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, Clay set out what the the argument is in theory for the Dobbs argument, although you said it much more eloquently and with la- less vitriol than uh Justice Alito did. Um and certainly with more respect to his fellow former justices. The problem with that argument is that justices, in theory, shouldn't really cherry pick which rights they want to go to the states and which rights they don't. Of course. And their interpretation of of privacy as a right and their interpretation of the Constitution relies on a very particular view of history. This is true for their ruling in the Bruin case, which is the gun case. And this is true for the ruling in, in the abortion case as well. So there are a lot of things that aren't written in the Constitution, and yet we think that are our cherished rights. So, for example, the right to marry isn't in the Constitution. And yet one would say that in order to have freedom over your life, order to have freedom over your family, then you have to choose how you want to spend your time and who you want to spend your time with. And that's really the nature of the 14th Amendment. The The history and the context behind the 14th Amendment is that individuals, if they do not have autonomy over their own bodies, if they can be sold, if they cannot marry the women that they love, if if their enslaved wife does not have bodily autonomy and can be raped by a by their owner, then you don't have freedom. Without those things, freedom does not exist. Freedom to create your own family is the essential element of humanity. In theory, that should be, I think, the defining purpose of who we are as an American people. That should be the the ideal that we strive for. And the problem with a lot of these rulings that we're talking about, including the Dobbs one, is that it says that that decision is not really up to you. It's up to the state legislature. And that is no less tyrannical just because it's coming from a state as opposed to coming from the federal government. And I think, you know, one of the things that has really come out in the last couple of days, which I think is so important, is people often say, well, oh, you know, I am maybe I live in a blue state 
my rights are fine. If I needed to have an abortion, that would be fine. But what about things like pregnancies that are no longer viable or pregnancies that are ectopic, meaning the egg is fertilized in the fallopian tube and it will rupture and it will threaten the life of the mother. And the only way to have, the only way to resolve that situation is to have an abortion. And by the time it ruptures, you have hours to fix it. Otherwise your life is in danger. And I, so I think that this, this question is so much more complex than really even the Supreme Court can handle because the Supreme Court justices are not doctors. And so the point is that these questions need to be handled by experts and they should be handled between the person whose body they res- that it's going to affect their doctors. And as I think, you know, people have said, of course, they're religious advisors, too. If that is important to you, you should absolutely seek out that knowledge. But that knowledge, that belief should not be forced on you if that's not something you aspire to. I just want to say a couple things about this. Number one, this is the most complex, morally upsetting, discombobulating problem that we can possibly face because it involves the sovereignty of a woman and her reproductive system. It involves a fetus. Uh, And the more we have learned, the more viability we have come to. There are people that feel that it's murder uh, no matter how you crack it up, uh, you know, we know that this is complex, that this is not something like tax policies for Montana or how we do um, change the way we think about oil depletion allowances. So the complexity of this is so great that most people are morally ambiguous, ambivalent, and confused about this, and people's minds changed in the course of their life. And I I just feel that it's important for us to rest on the complexity, which is why I agree with Lindsay. These nine justices are not doctors. I don't think they know the range of things that lead to an abortion. Their idea of abortion is somebody who's too lazy to have birth control, which they may go after next. These are not theologians. They have not read Aquinas and Augustine and Tertullian and the whole history of church doctrine from Christianity, Judaism, or any other religion on these questions. They're not ethicists. They're a bunch of lawyers who became jurists, and they have the same incapacity to understand the complexity of things that the rest of us have. And for those nine people, remember, I'm with something Lindsay said at the very beginning of this program. It was never intended that nine unelected and unaccountable people would have the the whole nation in their hands in this way. Jefferson was appalled by this notion. He was right, I believe. This is a doctrine that was imposed upon the Constitution, maybe inevitably, by John Marshall in 1803. But the idea that in a a nation of a third of a billion people, that nine people like Alito, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, like Clarence Thomas, like Sandra Day O'Connor, like Byron White, you name them, that we should put our destiny into the hands of nine people who are not theologians, not neurosurgeons, not gynecologists, not ethicists. It's insane. And that's why people are so upset about this is because who are these people, Lindsay? Jefferson said, quoting Juvenal, we need guardians, but who will guard us from our guardians? What makes these people capable of deciding Lindsay's reproductive future? That's my concern. It's incredibly well said. Um, And I think, you know, the problem with the Constitution 
I often say that it is a jumble of compromises put together to ensure ratification. Democracies are really hard. It's the hardest form of government. There's a reason so many of them fail. There's a reason so many of them crumble to violence or turn into authoritarianism in some way. It's a lot easier when you have a top-down system that is dictated by an all-powerful person. If we're going to have a democracy, if it's going to continue to survive, we have to find a way to acknowledge that no human is capable of having divine inspiration. And so therefore, the Constitution is not divine inspiration. Um, we are all flawed, just as the framers indeed were. And therefore, we have to acknowledge that the people who are interpreting it are too flawed because they are not capable of divine inspiration. And I think that really is where where we're at, is we have this body that has assumed way more power than was ever intended and is trying to interpret something that's flawed as though it was perfect. And I think if we start with that conundrum, it makes a whole lot more sense why all of these things feel so hard rather than saying why these conversations are so difficult. I'll say this as we close. Thanks to Lindsay. This is very hard. I, I hope our listeners uh, understand the, the level of angst and um, an ambivalence that we feel when we talk about these things, our reluctance really even to talk about them. But the, the fact is we must. And I will say this, David and Lindsay, the decision in Dobbs to overturn Roe was a political act, not a constitutional act. And that's the most alarming thing I can think about when I think about the future of the Supreme Court of the United States. We'll see you all next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701-575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson. Thank you.